What inspired Anch to drop out of college and start a company that just raised $1 million? And how did Anch's experiences working on the Dormroom Fund HQ team shape his worldview on tech? And stay tuned to find out how building a tech product helped Anch earn tickets from Duke to attend one of college sports' most watched events. Anch is a co-founder of Unifeed, a startup that allows users to fully customize their social media experience. Previously, Anch was the head of operations at the Dorm Room Fund, chief product officer at Zepto, and a student at Duke University. We're thrilled to be joined with him today. Welcome on the podcast, Anch. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Yeah, for sure. So I guess we can just start off light. Can you just share a little bit about your background and your time at Duke and being a Duke dropout and kind of what you're up to? Yeah, for my background... It really, I would say it all started when I made this website in high school. Um, it was this website to share like resources with my friends. And it was a very personal problem to me. Basically, I had a bunch of notes as, you know, obviously quite a big nerd in high school, unfortunately. Um, took a bunch of notes, had a lot of resources to, to study for like standardized tests and stuff like that, especially for the international baccalaureate program, but essentially made this website uh, where People could share their notes with each other, put it up on Reddit and Discord. And, you know, within a few months, it was getting millions and millions of hits. And I was getting thousands of messages in Discord and Reddit. Uh, people just telling me, thank you so much for making this. Basically, it was like a centralized repository for all these resources. Fast forward a little bit, freshman year of Duke. Uh, me and my friends, we built this nonprofit um, called You Change Earth. We helped people get started on their climate uh, journey by giving them personalized recommendations based on a short questionnaire they filled out. We needed a little bit of money to, to build these personalized guides because we were getting PhD students at Duke to do them and like PhD students at other universities. And so uh, we called, emailed a bunch of people. The next morning, the founder of kayak.com, Paul English, he Venmoed me a couple thousand dollars. And that was pretty awesome. My first time sort of getting like real funding. Um, and, you know, eventually we were able to grow that website. It was, it was, I would say a good, you know, good learning opportunity. And we were able to sort of sell those guides to, to the startup. I think you're, I think you're missing something though, that I really was excited to hear about was, uh, your time with Duke basketball. I saw that you created some cross platform mobile apps. So curious to hear what exactly that was and how you've been helping the Cameron crazies. Uh, oh, yeah, game that days. Was- that was a really fun experience. So it was, it was me as a freshman with like a couple of uh, seniors at Duke and we created this app for this tradition at Duke. It's called Tenting. So before the big Duke versus UNC game, which you could say is, you know, the most popular basketball game in the world, um, Duke students have to tent for up to three months in line just to get into the game. And the way it works is like you make a group with your friends and 30% of your group has to stay in line at all times. And they like randomly do like tent checks is what it's called. And so obviously scheduling, you know, 10, 15 person group is difficult. So we made an app where you could like import your calendar, log in with like your Duke email and sort of really easily schedule around your classes. Uh, We made this for Duke basketball and, you know, we were doing this completely for free. But Duke basketball really liked what we made. Hard, you know, 
Cameron crazy spirit and they gave us free tickets to the Duke UNC game in 2020 which was an awesome experience for me as a freshman I didn't have to go through this like laborious tenting process but I was still able to get tickets to this game which is super awesome do you have a favorite Duke basketball moment um yeah for sure I think you know every every year in the fall Zion comes to campus and you can like see him shooting hoops and sort of the the gym and stuff like that and you can also see him at the clubs or the restaurants and that's like you know always a great moment to witness I think he's still doing it up to you know this very year he probably spent more time uh, with Duke than he has in his NBA career playing (laughs) yeah for sure so we noticed that you were a member of the HQ team of DRF last year can you talk about how you got involved with that and your experiences there yeah. So after, you know, my journey at Kirana Kart, I, I decided to come back to college. And that's when I joined DRF last um, last year, um, sort of around this time, actually. And um, I, I knew about DRF as sort of, you know, the best place for student founders to come and uh, build their companies and get support. And I really wanted to be part of this community. And luckily, they opened up this position called Head of Operations, which is sort of like a product management position on the HQ team, which really helped DRF um, sort of build its brand and all, all the parts that are of building a venture uh, fund that do not include investing, like, you know, building its brand, building the website, building, uh, you know, stuff like this content as well. Um, and so as Head of Operations, my job was really to to facilitate and, uh, you know, help the whole um, HQ team with anything they need. You could, you could, you know, think of me as the janitor for the HQ team. I did have the stuff that no one else wanted to do. I helped people communicate and I helped us move really, really quickly. And so, yeah, that was my goal is that it was to really help the HQ team and, you know, uh, bring out the best in the team. And I think it was, a great experience, one of the best communities that I've been part of. And yeah, just love, love DRF. I love that you said you're doing all the dirty work. And I'm, I'm guessing a lot of the times as a startup founder, you got to do a lot of the dirty work. So how has your time at DRF taught you to be a better founder? And how has that experience kind of changed your paradigm as a founder? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, being part of DRF, I got to meet you know, the most exceptional people all over uh, the U.S., uh, the most exceptional students who are working in venture capital and startups. And I think the biggest thing that I learned from DRF was that um, really uh, it's never too early to start. Um, before DRF, I was like, you know, I, I thought we needed to be at a certain point or to have a bunch of stuff done before we could, you know, call ourselves a startup or a company or anything of that sort. But I think the biggest thing that DRF taught me was that anyone is a founder, even if they're just building side projects, even if they're just building, you know, things that, you know, products or tools for themselves to use, as long as you're building, you're a founder. And I think that ethos is like the best part about DRF is that no matter how early you are there, sort of willing, willing to support you. And that's really what I learned, you know, helping other founders either. It was through when I joined, you know, it was during the summer. So either 
through like the summer tracks um, where, you know, the HQ team really supported all the founders by giving them personalized advice. I was able to help a lot of companies with hiring since I'd done that before, but also building out their technology stack and, um, you know, uh, building, you know, initial MVPs. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, you know, through that process, I really learned that it's it's never too too early to call yourself a founder because I think there's a key difference, key sort of mindset shift that happens when you consider yourself a founder, which is that you really um, think of your startup as your baby. And I think that's, that's really important because um, you need to give it the same amount of like care attention as you would sort of like a newborn child because at the start it's you know the vision is fragile everything are moving parts uh, but as you grow it uh, you know it, it it gets more solidified but you always need to, to remember that uh, it's your baby and you can make whatever changes you want to it so yeah that, that was really the key learning there I'm sure there's a lot of student founders and people working on side projects that are deciding between taking like a big fancy internship and staying down that kind of more structured path versus doing their own thing and pursuing their startup full time. If I'm not mistaken, you were offered a position with Google APM. Is that correct? Yeah. So how did you personally think through that decision between whether or not to go down this very kind of prestigious program versus deciding to work on your own project full time? Yeah, I think for me, I was kind of just applying to these big tech companies because I didn't have anything else to do last summer. Um, I mean, I was working on Unifeed uh, sort of on the side, but it was nowhere near where it was right now. Um, and yeah, it was, it was really the second option for me because I always, like I've really had no uh, formal internship experience really sort of to speak, even though I've gotten a few offers, like you, you mentioned from, uh, you know, really great companies. Um, for me, it was always about how much ownership do I have over the product and thinking about working at a big tech company, like, you know, Google or Amazon or, uh, something like that. I felt like I would not be able to, to make something and contribute for me, it always goes back to that feeling that I had when I made that initial website that reached millions of users and people started messaging me about it. It was like, how close can I be to the customer? And I felt like at big tech company, it would be, I would be literally at the opposite end. And that really was the only decision-making factor for me is I just really want to be close to the customer. So now that we know like you turned down these cool internship opportunities at Google and other top companies, you obviously have been focusing more full-time and obviously are full-time with Unifeed. Can you talk about what Unifeed is and how you came up with the idea? At Unifeed, we're doing two things. Um, our vision is really to create a social protocol that allows for portability of friend graphs. The way that we're doing that is that we're offering users a app that allows them to browse Instagram, but get more features on top of Instagram. So we're giving them a taste of what could be possible with a full portability of their social graph. And so the flagship feature that we're launching with is the ability for users to completely customize and override the Instagram feed algorithm. And so if this feature would be something that Instagram would never build, 
because it would cannibalize their bottom line. And so by building this, we're showing people, hey, this is possible if you have a fully social port, so fully portable social graph. Um, and that is our vision. The way that we came up with this idea, me and my co-founder Hardik, we met while working at Kirana Kart, and you know we both left Surf at the same time for like different reasons, but we were just in touch, uh, you know, working together for seven, six, seven months. We became good friends, um, and we were deciding what was next for us. And you know, social media has been a big problem uh, for me. Um, Throughout my life, I deleted my Instagram account, you know, in high school because I hated the way that it made me feel. And, you know, my closest friends and my siblings have gone through similar experiences. And, you know, I really saw how much uh, grief social media was causing. And I thought it was purely due to the platform because it's such a wonderful invention. The idea that you can be connected with anyone anywhere instantly but the fact that, you know, companies like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, they're really just harvesting your data, trying to show you as many ads as possible uh, was something that we did not agree with. And we thought we wanted to fix that. I think this idea of having this portable social graph and just interoperability of data across different social platforms has been something that people have talked about for years, but it just seems, I think to most people, like something that can't be done because these platforms, like you mentioned, are ad-driven. And so they make most of the revenue by keeping you within their network, locking you in. How are you able to move this data across different social media platforms? Will Instagram come knocking on your door tomorrow saying, hey, stop what you're doing, like stop your platform, this is not legal. Like how, how are you kind of navigating that whole approach? So those, those are two really interesting points. The first, the fact that people have been talking about this for a really long time and that it's actually been done before. And actually the people who did it were Facebook. Uh, before 2012, Facebook had a completely open friend graph. And you might know some of the most popular apps in the world today that started on Facebook's friend graph, like Spotify, like uh, Twitter even. But Facebook shut their friend graph API down after they IPO'd because they weren't making any money off of it and they could make a lot more money just serving ads. Um, and so that's where decentralization comes in. If the friend graph was decentralized, they wouldn't be able to make this sort of decision instantaneously like they were because they're a private, they were a pri private company. Um, and then, you know, in the past decade, we've seen this other really amazing trend of sort of, crypto and web three and there's a lot of hype around it but what i really think about web three as is a business model a business model that allows decentralized protocols to make money and so now for the first time ever it, with these two really awesome trends of decentralization of web three and of cryptocurrency we're able to actually make a sustainable business that has a decentralized social graph and that can make money. Um, and to your second point on, you know, how um, Instagram's API is restricted and they might shut us off. I think that's a very good point because um, you're right. They might be able to shut us off. Um, but, uh, you know, recently there's been a lot of legislation that's been passed um, that deems web scraping and accessing of user data 
on third-party closed private platforms is completely legal. So you as a user, if you want to access your data on any platform, um, private or public, you can do that. You are fully authorized to your data. And so we've really seen trends being shifting towards this. And we hope that by building something like this, by building a way for you to take your Instagram friend graph off of Instagram, we're actually going to push legislation and even Instagram into the right direction where they're able to sort of evolve there. Um, but yeah, you, you're definitely right in the sense that it is a tricky thing to build. But honestly, um, if it wasn't tricky, if it wasn't difficult, uh, why would I even do it? It also would have been done by now if it's so easy to do. Exactly. So, love that you're pursuing the hard problems. I wanted to bring up some other challenges that just from, from my observation of the app alone, uh, it was about the, the user experience on Facebook and Instagram versus the user experience in, in your app, because I'm pretty sure you don't have the same number of software engineers yeah, you're right. <laughs> working for you. It's quite disappointing that the smartest brains of our generation are working to optimize pixels in Instagram. Um, it's quite sad, really. But you're right, like our app will never be as good as Instagram's app, um, most likely. But we do have, you know, certain advantages over Instagram is that we can take off all the clutter. So for example, you know, there are no ads in our app, like we can remove them. There's a toggle in the settings where users can remove them. Uh, we don't send red receipts, you can turn that off. So if you don't want to send red receipts for viewing stories or DMs, you can turn that off. And we hope that include, uh, alongside with the additional features that we've built would be useful to at least a small segment of Instagram's user base. So we really don't need to capture the whole market. We're even looking at like one to 5% of Instagram's user base. If they're interested in the features we have, that's enough for us to get the social graph data of many more people. Because if we get one person, we can get the social graph data of all their friends. And so that really helps us sort of grow our, our social graph data. Um, and that's, that's sort of the main reason why we're uh, starting with this app. You bring up some really interesting points about how Facebook has been launching products in the last decade or so. So if it's not acquisition, then they just copy the feature. Obviously acquisitions are gonna be a lot harder for them in this political environment. Um, in terms of copying, they've been pretty shameless about that. So what, I mean, you're a product guy. So what do the RPMs at Facebook do? Is it more like top-down? They're given this initiative and they just have to find a way to execute. Is it organic where they're like thinking of new initiatives to, to allow Facebook to compete with smaller startups like yours? Um, and, and I guess this could also be a pitch for, for if you want to plug, you know, hiring and, and why it's good to, to work at your startup as opposed to a big company like Facebook. The culture of innovation dies off as the company gets bigger. It's not the fault of the company. It's just how all companies, you know, grow their priorities change, especially public companies. Their number one priority is to increase revenue for their shareholders because they are working for their shareholders. We don't have any limitations like that as an early young startup. Our investors know that the most likely situation is that they get none of their money back. So we can take bigger risks we can execute better. And that's my pitch to anyone who wants to go zero to one. You know, me and my co-founder, we went zero to one at Kirana Cart and really showed us how we can build a company from scratch and lead it to 
to a point where you know when um, getting product market fit. Similarly, uh, we want to make that happen here at Unified, and we think we are on the right track. So if you're you know young engineer or interested in product and really want to solve one of the biggest problems of our generation, social media, which people have been trying to solve for over a decade, you know, um, feel free to email me. Uh, at unsh at unifeed.com um, and would would love to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to note that not every single Facebook acquisition or hostile like takeover has worked in terms of Snapchat. They tried to mimic that company and, and Snapchat's doing just fine. Uh, that's all the time we have for today, Ansh, but really appreciate you copying on the podcast. And I know Andrew and I really are admiring what you're working on because it's really going to change the generation if, if it works. And hey, even as you highlighted, if Facebook just copies it, that's a big change because they're still actively implementing these features that will improve potentially the mental health of people in our generation in the future. So on behalf of the Dormer Fund community, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Office Hours. To learn more about DRF, visit our website at dormroomfund.com. We'll see you back here next week.